This is Amy Poehler. My new movie, Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2, is coming to theaters June 14th, and it's making me feel joy and sadness and anger. Definitely some disgust. Rose! And I think a little fear. But I'm also feeling these new emotions like anxiety, embarrassment, envy, and ennui. It's what you call the boredom. Okay, that one was weird. It's going to be the feel-everything movie of the summer. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14. Get tickets now. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Medicine, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Claire Clark one of the hosts of the channel, and today I'm talking to Boel Berner about her book Strange Blood, The Rise and Fall of Lamb Blood Transfusion in 19th Century Medicine and Beyond. This book is um, published in the Medical Humanities series by Transcript Publishing um, and then is distributed here in the United States um, by Columbia University Press and is also available under a Creative Commons license. So we're just delighted to have Boel here to speak with us today. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Claire. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm looking very much forward to this conversation that we'll have. I wonder if you could begin our our interview by telling us just a little bit about yourself. Well, I'm a sociologist. I'm a Swedish sociologist, a historian. Uh, Last 30 years or so, I've been a professor at a multidisciplinary Department of Technology and Social Change in Linköping, which is a fairly small town in southern Sweden. And I was previously at the University of Lund, where I also got my doctoral degree. That's a bit further south in Sweden. And way back, way, way, way back, I have a high school degree from Brookline High School in the United States. And I also worked and studied for a long time in both London and Paris as part of various scientific networks. So your experiences are really as wide-ranging as the story you tell in your book, which uh, goes sort of all over, um, takes the reader all over Europe. Could you tell us, how did you come to write Strange Blood? Well, my background is in, as I said, technology and social change. Uh, and my work has covered quite a lot of large area, both historically and today. And I've been interested in the relationships between technology and society in general, both how people learn how to weld and turn a lathe or how women learn how to use kitchen technology and things like that. And in recent years, I've been very much interested in how medical doctors try to save patients. Uh, For example, women who hemorrhage and offer childbirth with the help of various more or less complex instruments of blood transfusion. So I wrote a book about the history of blood transfusion in Sweden. And then I encountered this very strange, odd intervention that was lamb blood transfusion. And it, I realized after a while that this took place also in other countries. And this, so I, I wanted to investigate that. And it was a project that took me across Europe to Germany, Italy, France, England, and to sources in very different, seven different languages. So uh, this is a fascinating story that hasn't been told before. And I think it's fascinating because it combines material, cognitive, social and emotional aspects of using a technology and handling uh, very difficult situations uh, at the sickbed or in hospitals or in laboratories. Uh, 
well, that's what yes, interested no, well, me. Well, let's back up just a bit and tell our listeners what exactly was lamb blood transfusion? Like what was the procedure and how does it work? Well, we need to go a bit back in time because there was there were lamb blood transfusions in the 17th century, actually the very first transfusions at all. Uh, they were made possible after Harvey had discovered the 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 role of, of uh, blood circulation in the body. So there were attempts in Paris, in London, and in Italy, but then they were condemned by the church and by medical authorities. And it was decided that this was not to be done. And also a lot of research in the 19th century said that you can't move foreign blood into human, into other, into other species. But then uh, there was this attempt, and actually the very first attempt at lamb blood transfusion in the 19th century, in the 1870s, was in the United States. It was in Wilmington, North Carolina in 1871. And the second one was in Naples, Italy in 1872. They were widely publicized at the time, but they turned out that they were failed attempts. But just a year after, in 1873, there was a small town doctor called Oscar Hasse, who made, he, he was small town of Nordhausen in uh, northern Germany, in the Hartz Mountains, and he made 14 successful transfusions to very sick people. And he published his result, and he started a formidable craze of an epidemic of lamb blood transfusion across the world. And there were hundreds of transfusions made, from Swedish spas to Italian mental asylums, from military barracks in St. Petersburg to uh, hospitals across the United States. Most prominently, they were in Austria and Germany and Italy. And there were enormous hope, and then after a while, also enormous disappointment. But it was seen as life-giving despite its repugnant animality, as some as one observer said. But it was also controversial and seen as pre-modern conceptions of blood being involved. It was hotly defended and eventually it was abandoned. And this uh, had been, well, transfusion in general had been reinstated in the early 19th century by an English doctor called James Blondell. And, but he did it with human blood. That was the first human blood transfusions in 1818. And uh, there were lots of experiments said that species foreign blood was poison, but the Hasse experiments upset this idea. And Hasse, you asked how it was done, and it was very simple technology, because he used two glass cannulas, one inserted into the artery of a lamb, and the other into the vein of the patient, recipient. And the, the, the lamp was tied to a board and then brought into the sick room, placed near the patient, patient's arm around the neck, and the two cannulas were joined with a tube. And there was a clamp that had prevented the blood from, from gushing out from the, the lamp's artery, but that was taken away. And then the blood was propelled into the vein of the patient. And this continued until, well, for one, two, three minutes, perhaps, until the patients cried that couldn't take it anymore, that their innards were going, were leaving them and, and, and they were dying and so on. 
so that the operation was discontinued and the cannula was taken away, patient given alcoholic beverages, and the lamb released to jump out quite happily onto the field. And there were other versions and techniques, but and sometimes the lamb didn't survive. Uh, well, I will return to how the patients fared. Sure, sure. Um, could you tell us a little bit how your interpretation of lamb blood transfusion differs from other historical accounts? Um, if, if it's mentioned at all in other historical accounts, which it doesn't sound like it is, I noticed that you um, you don't call it quackery, right? You don't... Um, you you seem you, you seem to take it quite seriously, even even though it is a bit um, outlandish, I suppose, to a, a, a modern reader. Yes, well, well, as you, as you suggested, there there were there are no other accounts, no no in depth accounts of this phenomenon. There, there were there have been mentions every now and then in histories of transfusion, mostly stating how terrible it was seen as an aberration in the forward march of Western medicine. But to me, it's just as interesting to investigate a losing practice like this one, because it tells us a lot about how medicine was done at the time, and perhaps also today. Uh, And also, I come from a tradition of science and technology studies, where there is a dictum that we should treat failed innovations with the same, see them with the same eyes as successful ones. So I wanted to understand the situation of those involved in this procedure, both pa- both patients and doctors and others, their despair, hope, disappointment, and the uncertainties and the muddle motives involved, and the ambitions and power and power games, social demands that occur when there's a new therapy like this that's being launched, widely accepted and widely then discarded. And it was taken seriously. It wasn't seen as quackery. So it was supported by some quite highly placed doctors and surgeons and authorities and associations. It was debated seriously at medical meetings. A lot of doctors uh, reported their experiences in medical journals at the time, and it was widely published publicized also in in, in popular in the popular press and it tried out in all kinds of uh, hospital settings and and one must understand that this was a time where they were one had great difficulties in understanding a lot of diseases what their causes were how could you cure them uh, I've been interested in the book to focus on two uh, diseases. One was tuberculosis, which was a very, very widespread disease. And until 1882, you didn't know what caused it. And the other is pellagra, which was vi- very widespread in uh, Italy at the time. So the doctors were quite felt quite he- helpless and hopeless. And they decided maybe, as one American doctor in Cincinnati said, maybe we'll test the mighty influence of strange blood. And, of course, there was also opposition to this, and uh, especially among the physiologists. You identify three men um, as sort of central in promoting lamb blood transfusion and, and sort of helping it 
catch on. Can you tell us a little bit about each of them? Well, yes. Uh, the uh, the 19th century medical world was a man's world. There were men fighting each other, struggling for, for recognition, for prestige, for power and influence. And the interesting thing about these three doctors, uh, one was I call the sanguine local doctor, the other the polemicist, and the third one the entrepreneur. They were marginal to central institutions such as hospitals and universities. But for a while they got world fame with their innovative ideas and their techniques and their quite daring promotions of these ideas and themselves. And the first one, the sanguine local doctor, was Oscar Hasse, the one who started it all. He was born in 1837, was a local doctor, he took care of the sick in and around the, the little town of Northhausen. He had also taken part in several of the wars of the 1860s, uh, and he got military rewards and awards for his contributions. He had done some um, normal uh, blood transfusion with human blood, but he was not, not content with the results. Then he read a book in 1873 by another German doctor, Fran who was called Franz Gesellius, the polemicist in my account, uh, in, uh, working in St. Petersburg. And Gesellius had written a book about the history of transfusion. Uh, he had found the 17th century transfusions with lamb blood very successful and argued that this was actually safe, useful, better than with human blood. It was living blood because it came directly from the arteries of the animal. And he convinced Husse. So he's tried it out, first on a young village girl suffering from various illnesses, and it was a success, and then on others. And he presented his results with at journals and conferences and managed to impress a lot of other doctors, and there were virtual pilgrimages to Northhausen to watch him do the transfusions, to learn, and to perhaps undergo one transfusion oneself. And he was actually credited with being quite an honorable man, uh, uh, good with patients, humble, competent. Uh, I've been to Northhausen and looked at a memorial in the town park because he was, he was seen as a, a somewhat of a local hero. He started a, a hiking club, and there's also a street named after him. So he was an honorable man. Uh, the other person, uh, the second person, the polemicist, was well, was he an honorable man, Franz Gesellius? Well, a lot, several of his contemporaries doubted it. He, he was born a few years after Hasse in 1840, he had also studied medicine in Greifswald and Berlin, but got uh, asked, was asked to leave because he, after a Jewish incident, and then he took off to Saint Petersburg, where there were quite a lot of uh, sizable German population, and he got quite well known for various fair-flung ideas and inventions. Uh, seen as having somewhat of an odd personality, to say the least. Then he decided that lamb blood transfusion was the future for medicine and wrote this big book, which was uh, quite exhaustive about the history of transfusion, but was also full of invectives and uh, innuendos and faulty statistics and so on. But it had quite an impact. 
and has tried out a lamb blood transfusion himself, several actually. Uh, the most famous one, perhaps, was uh, a competition, in a competition in 1874 to decide what kind of apparatus should the Russian military invest in, because they were interested in transfusion for future wars. And uh, Gesellius had problems getting the lamb and the patient tied together. The patient reacted violently to the transfusion. It was very bloody and messy and the patient died. So it was no success. And then he left medicine altogether. He founded a newspaper, uh, German-speaking newspaper, uh, and became St. Petersburger Herald. And it became very successful, despite or perhaps because it has some quite dubious journalistic uh, practices. The one who won that competition in 1874 was the third doctor, the entrepreneur, uh, Joseph Antoine Roussel. He's a Swiss. He was credited with being the most influential, the most ardent promoter of, of transfusion in the late 19th century. He was born same year as Hasse, 1837, educated in Paris. He had a clinic where he had what we may call alternative medicine, practice that. And he invented a rather complicated transfusion apparatus with which he then toured the, con the continent and England in the early and mid-1870s. And the point of this instrument was to, to avoid introducing air and blood clots into the patient because that was a very difficult and dangerous problem uh, for transfusion in the 19th century. This could be used with both animal and human blood, and he did both. And he was something of a sh somewhat of a showman. He performed, had huge performances with his apparatus on hundreds of occasions in front of large audiences, including Russian Tsar, diplomats, military men, doctors, members of various professions. And he managed to get the support of influential military surgeons in both Austria and Russia, and later also in Belgium, England, and finally France. They all adopted his use for, his instrument for use in their respective armies. And he also got state honors, Order of St. Vladimir in Russia, the Order of, Saint, of Leopold in Belgium. And when his, the interest, the general interest waned for, for, for transfusion in general in late 19th century, he turned to other fairly odd uh, practices. He turned to hypodermic injections of various fluids. In it, he experimented on himself. He used iron, mental arsenic, etc., and he founded a journal about this. What Russell understood, Russell understood, was that the real market for his invention was the military. So this is where lamb blood transfusion first, in a sense, caught on. So um, tell us a little bit about that. So it, it first catches on in the military, um, but then it spreads to other types of, of institutions that are, are a little bit fringe, tuberculosis sanitariums, mental asylums. Can you tell us um, how and why it catches on in these different places? Well, the military, of, of course, there, there's a lot of blood being lost in wars. 
and the mid-19th century was a time of wars. The, the most well-known ones are, the, of course, the U.S. Civil War, when more than 600,000 soldiers died, mostly from disease, but also from bullet wounds and so on. In Europe, there were several very bloody wars in the 1860s, uh, with Prussia, Austria, Italy, France involved, culminating in the Franco-Prussian War of 1870-71. So there was enormous bloodshed. Soldiers were left to die on the battlefield because this was waged with quite modern weapons, very destructive weapons, but under pre-modern medical conditions. And there were a few transfusions in, for example, the Franco-Prussian War, especially on the German side. But there could have been more, there should have been more military surgeons argued and regretted. So they were instrumental in furthering the interest in transfusion in the mid-1870s. And many supported the idea of a landlord transfusion because they were thinking of the wars that were surely would come. They put forward quite strange ideas. Uh, one from Giselius was that in every bat- into very ba- every battlefield, there could be orderlies, other soldiers carrying on their back uh, an already prepared lamb uh, to be used uh, to bleeding soldiers. Um, they they calculated that one one lamb or one sheep could actually give blood to four soldiers. So you brought 10 lamb and you had 40 soldiers saved. Others thought this was a very stupid idea and that the lamb actually should be eaten in a, in the barracks and uh, better to save the, the wounded soldiers with other means and alcoholic beverages and things like that. But uh, some of them thought this was a good idea using the the method of Hasse, others thought that the Roussel transfuser could have been could be very useful. So in civil life, uh, it wasn't really situations of large bleedings or anemia that was the real target for the use of lamb blood transfusion. It was rather, as you mentioned, tuberculosis also called consumption thesis, which was a terrible scourge in 19th century, especially among the poorer classes of society, who often lived in very crowded dwellings, uh, had little food, bad health. And Hasse initially did some transfusions of lamb blood to tuberculosis patients that claimed great success. And this really was, was uh, uh, people got very, doctors got very interested in this because they had no other really good cures for, for uh, tuberculosis at the time. And many of them were, were claimed success, at least initially. So there was a great interest in this uh, use of lamb blood transfusion. And you can Witness that also in the popular press and sometimes quite amusing. Um, I can quote one example for you. It's, it's probably a um, fake news story, made up story, but it made the newspapers as far apart 
as New Zealand and Sweden. Ah, it is, ah yes. Uh, it is about a thesis patient, a tuberculosis patient that got blood from a goat because there was no human donor or lamb at hand. But the effects of this transfusion were terrible because he started butting the doctor and I was around and he brayed like a goat and he didn't, he rushed about and did not come down until he was caught and bled and then got a new transfusion, this time from an Irishman, human blood this time. So his long-term condition was reported as, as good, but also that he shocked his Republican friends by, like most Irish immigrants, becoming a staunch Democrat. So I think it's a fun story, uh, although it's probably made up. I, I want to ask you um, a little bit more about the patient experience, but um, if you could maybe talk a bit about the mental asylums. Uh, yeah, well, I said something. I'll say something about the mental hospitals because this was a very strange idea to me when I first heard of it, and it's not been. It's a t- story that hasn't been told before, at all, uh, and it was an exclusive Italian affair. Uh, concerned the northern provinces around the Po Valley in Italy, and it concerned mainly a terrible disease that ravaged the Italian countryside in the 19th century called Pelagra. And Pelagra is characterized by four Ds, started as dermatitis, rough skin, the name Peleagra means rough skin, then and terrible headaches and a fever. Then second D, diarrhea, which left the patient very tired and emaciated. Then a third D, if nothing uh, was was done to help the patient, dementia or insanity, which took an increasing number of patients to the asylums of the newly united Italy in the 1860s, 70s, 80s. And then after terrible agony, mania, depression, suicidal tendencies, hallucinations, etc., the fourth death. So it's a terrible disease, affected poor peasants and farm workers and women more than men. The cause was unknown or disputed. It had to do with the peasants' almost exclusive diet of maize bread or polenta during large parts of the year. They couldn't afford to eat anything else and there were no real cures. So doctors were desperate. They got inspired by what they heard from Hasse and others. So they tried transfusion and it was just as easy to do it with lamb blood as with human blood or even easier because there were lamb around and the lamb's uh, blood cells were not larger than the, the ones of humans. So you could use them medically in a medical way. So they were made, there were hundreds of transfusions made in small doses and in, in several times to patients in Imola, Reggio Emilia, Brescia, and it seemed to work. Some, but not all, of the patients woke up from their stupor. They gained an appetite. They started to talk and walk around, and they could leave the asylum. And doctors had various theories of why did this work. 
Perhaps it was that blood in small doses worked like a medicine or a nutrient on mental patients that probably had a deficit of red blood cells. And this was, I think, uh, an instance of the politics of blood because the procedure was tried out by leading Italian psychiatrists, was endorsed by the main psychiatric association, by a major scientific academy. And if it worked, it would... It would be part of the Italian Risorgimento Renaissance. It would put Italy on the on the map of scientific discovery. It would give a scientific backing to mental care and it would enhance the power of science and medicine over superstition. So the it was part of the the Italian quest for getting a being among the great scientific nations of Europe. It also led to a lot of polemics in newspapers and arguments back and forth, just as in Germany and elsewhere. So it, it seems like, you know, there's a lot of, uh, um, there's a fair amount of, of clinical evidence or, or, or clinical records that this practice occurred in a variety of different settings and then sort of promotional material um, from the people who are trying to promote it. I wonder what you can tell us, if anything, about the patient's experience. Are there any, um, you know, evidence, is there any, does any evidence remain of that or does it have to be sort of filtered through medical records and experiments and propaganda? Well, it is filtered through the accounts, the reports that the doctors made at conferences, in journals. I think it's quite interesting that they actually reported on on their failures. Uh, when things didn't go well, when they, they got when it got all messy, when they tried to do the transfusion, transfusion and they had to, to abandon it or try it again the next day uh, in a different way. Uh, and they also recorded and reported about their when it didn't work, when the patients died. Probably no patient died directly from, from the transfusion. They died from whatever underlying disease they had because it wasn't only t- tuberculosis and pelagia. It was all kinds of other diseases as well that was tried. they tried to treat with, with uh, lamb blood transfusion, cancer and leukemia and so on. Uh, and they, they wrote about the terrible effects that the transfusion had on their patient I can cite one contemporary witness that said the patient, once the blood started flowing into the patient, had thinks the patient thinks he will suffocate, makes desperate movements, rises, wants to flee, the countenance is wild, the mouth wide open, the gaze staring, the pupils widened, violent cough occurs every now and then, is finally alleviated through an expectoration of a bloody froth from mucus. And they, they feel absolutely terrible. The breathing, it says, is by turns rapid, by turns completely absent. It gradually shows, slows down. But a deep coma-like sleep testifies to the great exhaustion of the organism. This is not a positive account. But that kind of account was given also by those who were positive. Because what happened then is that after this deep sleep, the next morning, there was often a remarkable change. 
patient claimed never have slept so well. They had a great appetite. Also, those who had not wanted to eat at all before, they joked and they very soon went to go to leave the bed, their beds, and go for walks. Hasse reported of a of a 59 year old woman who had really suffered from from uh, consumption, who very soon after having got the transfusion climbed a sizable mountain uh, with no breathing difficulties at all. Another young girl went to harvest dances in the weeks after having had the transfusion and so on. So sometimes they reported this happy outcome lasted, but sometimes it did not. And the patient relapsed or died. And I found only one account by a patient uh, who was a doctor himself. Oh, what, 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 what did that say? Uh, he was, pardon, he, he, was, he account, gave this account and it was published in an, uh, an English journal, magazine or journal. Uh, he was suffering from tuberculosis in a, at an advanced stage and he had asked Hasse for a transfusion. So he reported that he got very itchy urticaria and some other strange sensations and he did not improve much, but he was in favor. He thought this might be a good way to help people, especially in the early stages of tuberculosis. So despite him not feeling well or and not getting much better, he thought that this was something you could still experiment on. That was uh, a very uh, common attitude among many doctors and even those who were skeptical to the operation that maybe we should try a bit more. If I, I've looked at some patient registers, uh, church registers, they've given some information on some of the people um, that I read about. The most interesting one is perhaps the very first of Hasse's patients, who is Hermine Krüger, who was a 13-year-old girl, very sick, uh, at the time, and Hasse claimed the lamb blood transfusion was good for her. She lived on for another 30 years. She died in 1903. The first Swedish patient, a young man, was transfused in 1874. He lived on until 1929, died at the ripe old age of 81. So, there... so these reports are... Um... Uh, you know, um, these reports and presentations, these are mainly clinical experiments. Um, but there are, are tensions between clinical experiments and then laboratory experiments on lamb blood transfusions and what they say. I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about those tensions and why it sort of proved impossible to reconcile the two types of knowledge production. Yes, yes. Uh I think that for a new clinical intervention to be accepted, there has to be three conditions, at least uh, that's how we reason today. Uh, Firstly, there should be support by science. Uh, This was contentious in the 19th century. One observer said, we're still on the wide terrain on conjectures, beliefs and hopes. They said about blood. They didn't know very much about blood. But there were a lot of animal experiments done by physiologists. This was a time when science really had 
started to become very important in medicine. So they, the physiologists thought that they would have the correct answers. They had moved blood from horses to dogs, cow blood to cats, bird blood to frogs, etc., etc., and made a lot of experiments showing that species aid in blood was lethal. And now the clinical experiments, our experiences, showed otherwise. And the physiologists got very upset. There was one called Panum in Copenhagen, Landwey in Greifswald. They, they thought that, or they, they argued in uh, newspaper articles and conferences and so that those who followed Hasse's advice, they were ignorant, deluded, uh, and psychologically uh, had psychological difficulties and so on. They didn't know what they were doing. So they attacked Hasse and Gesellius verbally, and they did some new experiments. But uh, the clinical doctors, the hospital doctors, argued that well, science couldn't really tell you whether this was good or bad, because you can't really draw conclusions from the kind of animal experiments that the physiologists did to humans. For one thing, they transfused, the physiologists transfused much more blood than what happened in real transfusions. Uh, for example, they pass, has, uh, Panum, Panum emptied a dog from its own blood and then filled it up with horse's blood or cat's blood or whatever. And that was something that, of course, never happened in the clinic because there you gave, in some instances, only very small amounts of blood. And could it not be, the clinician said, just as useful as you gave small homeopathic doses of morphine and strychnine, so hemoglobin might be just as good and beneficial. And then physiologists had experimented on healthy dogs or cats or whatever, or rabbits and frogs, but the patients were ill. Some were very close to death and they had recovered, some of them. And of course, the physiologists could not study diseases uh, in animals. A lot of the diseases afflicting, uh, affecting humans uh, were not relevant in animals. For example, uh, mental illness. No experiments on mad dogs. So science, scientific results were either incomplete or irrelevant for clinical practice, it was argued. Now, the second criterion for accepting a new therapy was, of course, that there should be evidence that it works. And there, the uh, clinicians did not uh, could, did not have very much to say because they their reports were quite incomplete. They were deficient. They were poor in, in information about the the. Uh, condition of the patients, their illnesses, their temperature, amount of blood transfused. They didn't count the number of blood cell, red blood cells before and after transfusion and so on. And critics argued also that the those doing lamb blood transfusion were quite liberal in defining success. For how long, in what sense, so on, what was, success, what was a successful transfusion? And results and the reports were often presented quite soon after the intervention, but many patients died later on. So the critics argued this was not proper clinical trials. And there were statistical compilations also made, uh, 
to see uh, proves or to prove or disprove the worth of lamb blood transfusion. There were so many of them now that it could actually collect and compile uh, st statistics about it, but they couldn't give any clear answer either because they lumped together very dissimilar cases and the information was poor and the, the statistics was quite unsophisticated. For example, the physiologist Landois, he tried to disprove lamb blood transfusion with statistics. He collected a lot of cases and, and uh, uh, argued about them. But if you do a careful reading of his results, it turns out that lamb blood transfusion, which he didn't like, was actually more beneficial than transfusion with human blood. So statistics and could not give an answer. The clinical trials were not seen as real clinical trials and scientific experiments were also um, did not give answers. They were seen as sometimes irrelevant for, for uh, clinical work. So if you ask a question, did it work? It's very difficult to answer. Of course, we know now that it couldn't work. But at the time, they were really uncertain about the evidence. So there was a lot of confusion. And perhaps it worked, but only in small doses and perhaps with other interventions at the same time. And maybe some of the tuberculosis or pellagra patients would have recovered anyway. So it's quite difficult to assess the results yeah. of these transfusions. And then, of course, you write that, you know, in addition to these sort of scientific disagreements and tensions, that lamb blood transfusion was a transgressive act, that it, it quote, elicited curiosity and controversy, enthusiasm and sarcasm. So how did physicians and researchers kind of make, make sense of the medical ethics of the practice at the time? Um, I, you know, they, what sort of framework were they operating in and what criteria did they use to judge this sort of practice um, permissible or not? I think we're now in the third condition for accepting a new intervention or not. Is it worth it? Is it beneficial despite the harm it does? Or is it more harmful than beneficial? And there was at the time no established codes of conduct and no clear ethical guidelines. So the scientists in their labs and the doctors at the bedside had to decide themselves what was acceptable. And one aspect of this concerns the animals involved. Of course, there wasn't only the patient, there was the animal. And this was a time where there were strong anti-vivisectionist movements who attacked the often very cruel practices of laboratory science. And the animal experiments on blood transfusion were indeed quite awful. There were none made on lamb, because lamb were too valuable, I think. Uh, and the lamb were not all that badly treated, I think, in transfusions, because lamb sheep were valuable for their milk, for their meat, for their fur, and should often be returned safely to their owners. So they were taken care of. And the dogs and the rabbits and the frog in the lab were not. And the second issue concerns the disgust. Because animal blood 
was, after all, strange, alien blood. Was it nauseating getting it? Well, apparently not, although some doctors feared that especially women would object to having an animal so close by. And perhaps that was why lamb blood transfusion, in contrast to human trans- with transfusion of human blood, was not really attempted uh, in situations of childbirth or gynecological disease. The only, actually, the only time it was attempted in England, it was in that kind of case. But there was an exception. Uh, but in general, there seems to have been little squeamishness among, among most patients. And some of them actually begged for the transfusion to take place. And one English doctor who was involved in this one and only transfusion in England uh, noted, well, this was just taking lamb in another form. Nothing to get upset or disgusted about. Huh, so. uh, third, third issue, well, <laughs> would you have been disgusted by getting animal blood into your veins? Well, you don't know. Mm-hmm. If you're really, really sick and you perhaps do not really understand what is going on, uh, and that is the third issue, that is one of consent. Uh, hardly informed consent because few doctors felt it necessary to educate their patients about effects. And sometimes Some of them tried the trans- alarm blood transfusion for the very first time and did not know about the terrible effects it might it would have. But in 19th century hospitals, there was what we may call a medical paternalism. Doctors were at the top of the hierarchy. Doctors knew best. They decided. They sometimes asked, as in the uh, Italian asylums, uh, they didn't ask, but they they gave sweets and goodies to their patients to make them accept a transfusion. Sometimes they even decided not to perform one if the person didn't want one, but there was a very seldom case, at least not among the reported ones. So, uh, and so, so they didn't do a transfusion if the patient refused. Doctors were not evil. They wished their patient well, of course. But they also thought that a lamb blood transfusion experiment would further medical progress, just like many other successful treatments that had initially been uh, criticized and rebuked. So they, they wanted to be on the side of medical progress. So it was an ethical controversy that um, led to the um, that put an end to, as you write, the 19th century story of blood transfusion. Um, what was it? What finally put an end to it? And then what lessons do you think we can learn from this um, sort of strange experimental period? Well, there were several reasons. One was that this was actually quite a cumbersome and complicated thing to do. You had to find a lamb, not always easy. You have to prepare it, which was not always easy either. Quite messy sometimes, and sometimes you didn't succeed in getting all the various uh, tubings and and things together. Uh, you needed assistance. You needed to be quite quick and precise and attentive. Uh, secondly, it was, after all, a terrible experience for many patients, even if they sometimes got better afterwards. 
but it was not really successful enough. Uh, and well, opinions differed. But then, in in many cases, that it was in a sense delegitimized. It, it was seen as a very odd thing. Uh, there were jokes going around about it. Um, at the medical conference where Hasse presented his, his results in 1874, there was a quip going around saying that to do this kind of transfusion, you needed three sheep, the patient, the, doc, the, 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 the lamb, and the stupid doctor. So it was ridiculed. And thirdly, the why, why do a lamb? Why do a transfusion, a blood transfusion at all? What was it for? And what happened was that new notions of blood took over by the end of the 19th century. Historically, traditionally, blood, of course, has been seen as a fantastic and mystical and vital fluid, the source of life. Uh, the mid 19th century had changed notions of the notions of blood and thought it was a biological entity, especially the red blood cells performed useful functions within the body. This, of course, was part of the new physiological knowledge that you had. By the late 19th century, this was uh, changed because blood was now conceived as a mere means of transportation of other useful things within the body. It was also fluid that kept the pressure up, the machinery going, so to say. So therefore, any other fluid, they tried milk, they tried gum, arabicum, etc. Uh, but the favoured alternative was a saline solution. It could be just as good to keep the machinery of the body going and much less cumbersome and difficult than doing a transfusion. You had no donors to cut up, no lamb to hunt for, no fear of blood clots. Therefore, also transfusion with human blood disappeared. It was seen as complicated, useless and dangerous. And this was actually, before you know about blood groups, a uh, number of transfusions with human blood uh, were dangerous. Not so dangerous as you might have thought, no, since they didn't know about blood groups until early 19th, 20th century, because given the percentage and the prevalence of different blood groups in a population, there was quite a good chance that you hit on the right um, blood group when you transfused with human blood. But it was also, just as lamb blood transfusion, seen as uh, fairly dangerous and difficult and perhaps not so successful operation. So they there was there were no transfusions, very few transfusions with also with human blood in the So if, if it just if it that the this period came this story comes to an end because well pe people discovered that it just didn't work, then um, then what are the lessons for us if not medical progress, right? Scientific progress. Um, well I, I would also say there's fourth reason for it disappearing in the 19th in the late 19th century and that was that there were no more wars they thought it seemed so during the late last decades of the 19th century but then of course in 1914 all changed and blood transfusion was reintroduced again only with human blood it stayed with us ever since uh, 
where the lessons is that uh, you can't see, well, there are several. One is that there's not a sort of easy forward march of science and medicine. There are stops and restarts and so on once you learn along the way. Uh, and that people try out new ideas, but um, they might not work. And that happened all the time. And it happens all the time today, too. Uh, today, such experiments are better regulated. Uh, we have ethical guidelines. We don't kill animals the way they did in, in the 19th century laboratories. Uh, we have informed consent. We have patient autonomy. There are lots of regulations and rules that makes this a much more orderly um, situation. But as we've seen in pandemics like HIV in the 1980s uh, and today, there is um, sometimes you don't really know what will help. There's not enough science, uh, even if science has progressed enormously since the 19th century. And, and you have situations where clinicians want to try some some remedies that are well established in other cases, but may, you don't really know if they will work in the current pandemic, for example, the COVID one. So the, the situation where you have clinical evidence and scientific evidence sort of competing with each other or these different practices competing with each other, you still get these uh, also today. And the lesson learned perhaps is that there is a thin line between what you learn in, in scientific laboratories and what you can learn from interacting with patients in the hospitals. And uh, it's not always easy to decide which, which evidence would count as, as the most um, relevant one. Well, Boel, it certainly is a, a strange and fascinating story. Um, we've taken up a lot of your time. Can you tell us what are you working on now? Well, I have two projects. One concerns the politics of blood. Of course, the lamp blood transfusion thing was also a political thing. Uh, but this other project deals with what is in the blood how it is intertwined with social conflict and politics in the interwar years, in the 1920s and 30s. For example, how blood group research, the knowledge of blood groups, was used for race biology purposes in Sweden, in Germany and elsewhere, across the world, and also in cases, legal cases of contested paternity. So what is in the blood is not innocent, politically. The other project concerns Pellagra, because I got really fascinated by the situation for the Pellagra patients in the, 19, in the 19th century. And there was also a situation in the United States in the early 20th century. Lots of Pellagra sufferers in the South states, southern states of the United States, and 100,000 dead in the period up to 1940. And there was such a lot of uh, controversy around what caused Pellagra. So I'm interested in, well, 
some some thought it was a toxin, others thought it was an infection or a genetic predisposition among black people, or was it a lack of something in the food that poor people ate? So science and politics were intermingled and there was a controversy. But in contrast to the history of land blood transfusion, this one ended in a relative consensus in the interwar years. Of course, it was established that the cause was a deficiency of vitamin B or niacin. So it's how this riddle was attacked by science, different means, different ideas, and the interactions between science, politics, and emotions and social prejudice that I want to analyze. Well, wow, those sound like equally fascinating projects, and I, I hope you'll come back to talk about them once they are published. Boel, thank you so much for taking time to share your work with us today. Thank you very much for listening to me. Mm-hmm.